Hello and welcome to the ALC Pan-African Radio's magazine program where we bring you highlights of news from across the African continent. Hello and welcome to this edition of the magazine program with me, Munira Shayeb. October marks Black History Month in the United Kingdom, which was first celebrated in 1987. The events undertaken throughout the month are intended to highlight the contribution and achievements of people of African descent. It's also an opportunity to raise awareness about issues such as racism, discrimination and how to challenge them. Over the years, the Africa Leadership Centre at King's College London has been marking Black History Month through holding events to showcase the work of various departments, units and academics that engage in research, education and outreach activities relating to Africa and to facilitate interaction between academics across King's faculties, working on Africa and African policy practitioners as well as experts from partner institutions. This year, the ALC held what it called Africa Week, and in this edition of the magazine program, we highlight some of the issues discussed recently. Professor Fumi Olonishakin, co-founder of the African Leadership Center, vice president and vice principal international, had a conversation with Professor David Oloshuga, who is himself of African descent, journalist and leading public historian at the University of Manchester in the north of England on the importance of global black histories. What I've tried to do is to look at what we call black British history and see it as an imperial history. And that's really all I've try to do that there is because of historians like Florence Shylon, uh, James Walvin, Peter Fryer, we got we developed a black British history that was about the black presence in Britain and that was kind of you know critically important. They were working with almost nothing. It was historical salvage. They were in the archives trying to find fragments and trying to flesh them out, trying to find biographies of people that we now take for granted. Mary Seacole and Mary Prince and Ignatius Sancho and try to sort of bring these stories back to life and create this pantheon of Black Britons. And that's all critically important work. And it's, you know, it's been literally life-changing for me. But I think one of the difficulties we've had is that we've taken an American template of an idea of Black history and we've applied it to a country that's very different. We've applied an American template to a colonial power. And Black British history just can't be contained within the continent, within the, the islands of Great Britain. It, it, just, it just doesn't work. American history, to an extent, not as much as many people think, but you know, largely can be, and much more successfully can be than, than Black British history. Black British history has to be global. It has to be, in a, in a, the metaphor I use, it's triangular. It's triangular, just like the triangular Atlantic slave trade. It takes place in Britain, it takes place in Africa, and it takes place in the New World. And that's the sort of version of Black British history that I've been trying to write. It's obviously enormous. It hugely expands the range. But it seems to me that that there are all sorts of groups of Black people who are invisible if the traditional if you use the traditional lens with which to look at Black British history. It's about communities and individuals here. There's lots of people who are absolutely central to the story of Britain and the British Empire, people who are caught up in the kind of gravitational pull of British power over centuries, who are not, they're not caught in that lens, they're not visible through that lens. The, 
the 1.8 million African-Americans who by the 1850s are producing the cotton that's going to the four and a half thousand mills that, that are producing cotton clothing in Lancashire in the, in the middle of the 19th century. They don't, they're, they're invisible. If you look at black British history through that lens, the people of Sierra Leone are invisible. If you look at through that lens, I remember walking along a street in Freetown, Sierra Leone, and seeing street after street after street named after a British prime minister or a British colonial secretary. And you see this place that the, the villages of Hastings and Waterloo. Um, this place is absolutely just the imprint of Britain is just so, so firmly pressed into the soil of Sierra Leone. And yet it is invisible if you use the traditional understanding that black British history is about individuals and community formation here in Britain. So it's a very sort of simple, if expansive and sort of, you know, unrealizable ambition because it's, you know, it makes it huge and ungainly. But black British history has to be understood in a global context. It takes place in Britain, in the new world and the, the, the plantations and the communities there, but also in Africa. Professor Oloshuga thinks that there has been a concerted effort in the United Kingdom to convince black British people that there are no similarities between their situation and that of the African-Americans in the United States of America. He says that the Black Lives Matter movements in both countries have shown that the opposite is true. Black Lives Matter protest and the energy that it released replicated the virus in terms of they could not be contained within the borders of any single country. And I think if you, it's really interesting to look back to the newspapers and the news reports of the end of May and early June of this year, because the, there was a concerted effort in this country to try to persuade black people that there was no sensible comparison that could be made between their lives and their situation and those of African-Americans. And that America was unique and that American racism was unique and that Britain was so much better than America that it was childish and, and puerile to make draw any comparisons. And that attempt to create a firewall, to use the political borders between countries to control this wave of revulsion and act activism and anger and learning, um, they just, utterly failed. It was like a weather system. It crossed the world and it made landfall in different countries. And those techniques, which often have worked to say, this is different, this is special. America's unlike the rest of the world. It, it didn't work this time. And I've heard lots of people ha who've had conversations, especially within companies, where that argument was the first recourse of people who wanted to dismiss and deny and disavow what was happening. Well, that's America, that we're not like that. Yeah. This habit of using American racism and American history as a distraction from examining ourselves has been very, very effective for, for years. And in 2020, it didn't work. And I think that in itself is not unique, but I think that that, that, that is a kind of special event of, of, of 2020. I think there's something else you can see which is unparalleled about this situation. If you look at the old photographs and films of the American civil rights movement in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. What you see is you see mainly the people marching for black equality are mainly African-Americans. If you look at pictures, say, of the New Cross March in London in 1981 after the terrible New Cross fire, again, it is mainly black British people marching in the name of black racial justice. That community had very few allies. There's some white people there. Not many. Um, then you look at the images of 2020. 
and what you see is a global movement that involves people of every race and every background what unites them tends to be that their their age rather than their than, than their race this is a generational movement rather than a, a, an appeal by one community for their own rights this is a generational movement and it's infused with these ideas of allyship this understanding that race is structural this understanding that um that for race to be challenged it cannot just be a task that falls to black people alone all of that feels very distinct what feels entirely normal and entirely like other events is the way that the black lives matter movement has been attacked and denounced and disavowed yeah. that feels very familiar the attempt to equate black demands for civil rights and for equality with bolshevism the yeah. attempt to use any event um any fringe event any fringe activity any fringe violence to tar an entire movement that's entirely familiar the attempt to use the fact that a horse bolted during a demonstration in london to uh to imply that the horse and the and the, and the female police police officer were, were were attacked to take the fact that some idiot put graffiti on churchill's um uh monument as a culture war wedge issue to try to convince white people that black black equality was a threat to them all of that feels very familiar i keep thinking about the way in which the, in 1919, when African-Americans had fought in the First World War, they'd fought in the French army because white officers in the American army wouldn't lead them into battle. Um, how those soldiers from the 369th Infantry and, and the others, how they came back to America to make appeals for civil rights. They fought for their country. Some of them had died for their country. They had medals on their chest. They had wounds. And they came back to America with Dubois, leading you know using his his you know, incredible literary skills to, to to lead this this demand you know we come back fighting um for for, for america for, for civil rights that movement one of the most decisive destruction destructive acts against that movement was to say they were bolsheviks they'd come back from the western front they'd come back with the the bacillus of bolshevism and it worked it worked brilliantly effectively and this could work the social media is full of people who will attack you and say Black Lives Matter is, well, A, it's a movement, you know, like an organization like the Communist Party with a, with a membership card. And of course, it isn't. It's a series of ideas with multiple movements involved. It's, 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 it's not what is being portrayed to be, portrayed to be. Social media and the mainstream media is full of people using these attacks. And they've worked before and they could work again. But when you think about that victory of those people who disavowed the demands and the appeals of African-Americans in 1919. And you think what that cost America. Imagine if the civil rights movement, for all its faults, for all the way it's been rolled back in the 70s and 80s um, under Reagan. Imagine if that had happened in 1919 and 1920. Imagine if the, the March on Washington had been in 1923, not 1963. America would be 40 years further down this journey towards social justice. So they might win, they might contaminate the minds of millions of people that black people appealing for their justice is a threat to them, that any black organization is, a, is Bolshevik or it's extremist or it's terrorist, whatever the libel, they might win, but the cost of them winning is a cost for everybody, not just, not just black people. Professor Oloshuga goes on to talk about the need for what he calls decolonizing the curriculum and making Africans characters rather than footnotes in the British curriculum. 
my focus as a professor of public history is to how we draw connections between the work that's happening in universities and the soul searching that's going on within university history departments in particular, but also literature departments and other subjects and the public discourse on history and the public delivery of history. Um, and I mean, I've always seen it as my role to try to be a connective circuit between the world of public history, the world of, of, of television in particular, but also um, this kind of public engagement with history and the world of academic history. I mean, I'm very purposeful when I write um, that I, 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 I try to write about academic historians within the text, not within the footnotes. I try to make them characters in the telling um, of history whenever I can. I sort of use them and describe them rather than just cite, cite their works. Um, because I kind of think that's a sort of specific role for me. It's sort of somebody who's kind of neither quite one thing or the other. I'm, mm. I'm very television and people in, t but people in TV see me as very academic-y, whereas people in academia see me as very media. <laughs> uh, and I think it's quite useful to have kind of hybrid organisms mm. um, when we're trying to create spreads and connections between one sector and another. So I'm, I'm interested in how we deliver in public history, the fruits of what's going, what is happening within university history departments in particular about reimagining the curriculum. Now I'm very cautious about terminology, terminology that comes from critical studies, because I think I'm acutely aware, perhaps more so than people who spend more time in universities because I spend a lot of time in journalism and in television is how these terms can be abused and how bad faith actors can uh, characterize and mischaracterize these, term, these, these terms. So I'm very careful about, um, and I, would, I was given an interview recently where I sort of, you know, tried to explain what, how I see the term decolonize, which is really just, we need to tell everybody's stories um I, I think it's as simple as that we need to find space to tell everyone's stories um by expanding the curriculum um and prioritizing um so i'm very careful about using these terms um and you know if, if you by their nature people in, in universities are open to ideas they're thinking deeply mm -hmm. and that's not true of most people in most areas of life most of the time who are busy getting on their on on with their lives and they want someone to give them shorthand um, to what's going on. And sometimes that shorthand is deliberately misleading. So I'm very careful about the terminology that we use. According to Professor Olusuga, deep belonging is founded in history and history being the least popular subject among black children needs to be taught to them so that they can learn about the importance of blackness. History is one of the least popular subjects among black kids choosing their A-levels and choosing university courses. It's one of the most popular subjects amongst black kids. By the time British children get to 16, many black kids have decided that history is not for them because it's not about them. It doesn't seem to take anything they say or think or believe or care about into consideration. And they've they made a perfectly rational calculation, which is why would they want to spend three years and a lot of money studying a subject that doesn't seem to care? Why should they care about history if history has no place for them? And this is what we're up against. And as a result of black children not wanting to do it at A-level, the numbers doing it undergraduate are low. 
even and obviously that feeds through to every stage mm. postgraduate um postdoctoral um early career and we just don't see it i mean the fact that you know olivetto telli was the, the first black um, um female history professor in the uk you know it's like a pub quiz question it's gonna it's, it's one of those pub quiz questions from the future that will catch people out if we have any pubs in the future um because you you think it's going to be 1963 and it's 1918 2018 that the first black female history professor was appointed in the british university the scale of our failure is appalling and what i see in history and television is what i've seen in other parts of the kind of ecosystem of history we blame the other parts of the ecosystem mm -hmm. television people say well there aren't any black academics so how can we find black presenters or black stories they'll say the publishers aren't publishing books from black historians therefore how can how can we do anything and the publishers will say well there aren't any black academics because the universities are failing and the universities will say well there aren't black kids coming through because the schools are failing and all of these things are true but something can be not your fault and it can still be your problem and it is the problem of everybody involved in history that black people and young black people don't feel that it is for them and don't enter into the world and don't see the value of history and don't see, you know, what Trevelyan called the quasi-miraculous fact of history, that they're not moved by it, that they're not transported by the idea of traveling through time and space and communing with our, with generations long gone. That kind of magical thing that everybody who studies history feels. Many young black kids don't feel. And even if you don't care about telling a comprehensive, wholehearted, honest history that includes black stories, even if that's not important to you, if you care about your fellow your fellow citizens, you'd want them to have what, what the rest of us have, which is a sense of deep belonging, founded on history, um, in our in our country and in the space that we are, we occupy. We've got a deep, deep problem, and it's the responsibility of absolutely everybody who's involved and interested in history to address it. And we need to stop blaming other parts of the history ecosystem. That was Professor David Oloshuga, journalist and leading public historian at the University of Manchester. You are listening to ALC Pan African Radio. Stay tuned. Part of the ALC's Africa Week also, Dr. Godwin Moronga, former director of the ALC, historian and research fellow at the University of Nairobi, delivered a lecture titled Knowledge Production and Higher Education in Africa. He raised some of the points discussed earlier with Professor Oloshuga. I think that the transformation agenda is, is very much about the coloniality. Uh, and so I would like to, to begin uh, by speaking about uh, the transformation agenda, uh, decoloniality, and what that means for, 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 for the future of higher education in Africa. Uh, perhaps uh, I think it's important to mention that decoloniality uh, is not just about colonization, but it's a, really a disruption of old uh, forms of colonialism. Uh, and the logics of neocolonialism. Uh, it touches on a whole range of other, of very many things, but uh, I think at the core of this is uh, disrupting the legacies of colonialism and neocolonialism in, in, in education in particular. Um, I think that the coloniality also would involve a revival and introduction of forms of thought that more specifically speak to our African situations. Um, 
so it is uh, at its core a desire to quote uh, the title of Gugi Wapiongo's two important books, um, Decolonizing the Mind and Moving the Center. Um, colonialism could be about the infrastructures of power relations and the exploitation and all that that goes on. But as uh, our colleague Sabelo uh, has, has argued, uh, it is one thing to remove colonialism. Uh, it is a totally different thing, uh, in my view and in his view, uh, to, to, to change the mind. And at the core of the transformation agenda, there must be serious work uh, dealing with the transforming the mind, decolonizing the mind, and instituting new relations that are driven by different and new ways of thinking about our situation. So that if we have to talk about the transformation agenda, the need to disrupt uh, is key to it. And perhaps there are two things that drive uh, the desire to, 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 to re-engage this issue around the coloniality and the transformation agenda. The first of these two things is uh, the problem of the external location of knowledge production about Africa. Um, and the influence of such external powers and actors uh, who seek to control uh, what kind of knowledge is produced about Africa. Uh, the second thing is to focus on the defects that our own higher education systems in Africa retain and have continued to reproduce over and over again uh, to the point uh, where uh, while we enjoy uh, what one would call flag independence, uh, uh, within that context of, uh, of, uh, of, of, of that flag independence, there are being reproduced on an everyday basis forms of thought uh, and ways of handling uh, our situation, uh, particularly being reproduced in the higher education sector that we need to confront. And I would like to spend a, a few minutes uh, speaking about uh, these two general challenges that uh, have forced a good many of us uh, to continuously uh, uh, mount insurgencies uh, against uh, persisting forms of colonialism, persisting forms of uh, knowledge that uh, deter uh, the transformation agenda in higher education in Africa. Uh, the external location of knowledge production about Africa and the external influence such a power plays co uh, uh, to control knowledge production on the continent uh, is a key uh, issue that we have to constantly deal with. And perhaps it's important to remember that it's uh, something that we've, uh, many African scholars over generations uh, have dealt, uh, dealt with, that uh, our levels of success keep on uh, changing over time. Occasionally, uh, the African Academy is able to push back the boundaries around which uh, the influence of external uh, actors uh, uh, is great and occasionally when it's at its lowest level. Uh, these are struggles that uh, uh, in essence define the higher education context in Africa. And perhaps it's important to understand that the power uh, that informs uh, aid notions of, uh, of colonialism that persist on the continent. Um, some of this power is nested in institutions of knowledge production within Africa and abroad. Uh, so including Western universities, uh, including associations uh, that are involved in the generation of knowledge uh, in Africa. Uh, this morning when I woke up, I, I, I was uh, reviewing the African Studies Review, incidentally where Tade Aina's uh, lecture that I'm making reference to uh, was published. 
And the first thing that uh, I noticed was an editor's note uh, that perhaps for the first time explicitly acknowledges that uh, uh, associations like the African Studies Association have been uh, propelled by a racist logic and that there are power relations within those associations that have made it difficult for African-American scholars and African scholars to have a genuine voice in the production of knowledge about Africa. So that uh, while we are making significant moves in the context of, of the Black Lives Matter moment uh, in relation to the kind of knowledge we seek to produce, I think the acknowledgement even in the African Studies Review that these structures persist and they influence the nature of knowledge and determine in, to a large extent where Africans and African-American academics are, or African uh, scholars across the Pan-African Pan African world are located. I think that it's important to begin to center on the influence of such institutions in the, in the, in the production of knowledge about Africa and the extent to which it makes it uh, difficult uh, for, for us to really begin to focus uh, clearly on the transformation agenda. Of course, one can mention a whole range of other institutions that are relevant to the reproduction uh, of uh, power relations that undermine the transformation agenda uh, in, the, in the African Academy. Uh, funding agencies that support knowledge production, uh, but also seek to influence what kinds of knowledge are produced about Africa. Uh, publishing uh, and dissemination outlets uh, that uh, are key to who says what about Africa. Um, and more importantly, I think policy uh, influences that come from a whole range of other institutions, not necessarily involved in knowledge production, but actually those that are involved in knowledge validation. Uh, these are key players in the reproduction of, the, uh, of knowledge in Africa that is externally driven. Now, there is nothing, by its very definition, there's nothing inherently wrong in knowledge coming outside Africa. But I think uh, what uh, the movement around the coloniality has centered on is uh, uh, those that have committed what, they, what has been described as epistemicide, which is uh, uh, destroying the knowledge bases uh, uh, that Africa has had over historical time and replacing it with a, a knowledge driven by a very Eurocentric logic, uh, often uh, driven by very specific ways of knowing uh, that do not accommodate alternative or different other ways of knowing that are not uh, Western. Uh, I think that part of the reason why the transformation agenda remains important is that uh, these institutions, these agencies, uh, uh, the, the policy influencing institutions are very, very key uh, to what we say about Africa, who says it and whose knowledge is identified as uh, being uh, legitimate, valid, and occasionally even relevant. Also part of the same series of events held by the ALC recently, Dr. Awino Okesh, who teaches Gender Studies at the School of Oriental and African Studies in London, gave a keynote lecture titled Global Blackness and Transnational Solidarity. She highlighted the issue of gender and Pan-Africanism. Now, when we think about Pan-Africanism, I know as a young uh, activist working on the African continent, when I thought about Pan-Africanism and I'd not spent too much time reading about Pan-Africanism, I assumed that this is an idea and a, and a movement that emerged from the African continent and that was rooted in the work of uh, folks such as Kwame Nkrumah. But Pan-Africanism has got a much longer and, uh, and extensive history that emerges from outside the African continent. Indeed, it is rooted in the experiences of uh, 
people of African descent who found themselves outside the African continent. But this theoretical framework and ideological movement is one that articulates the need for Africans and people of African descent to restore what slavery and colonialism took away from us. The underpinning logic echoes what many decolonial scholars have pointed out, whether you're talking about Ndlovu uh, Gasheni, Kijano and many others, is that slavery, and here we're talking both about the Arab slave trade across the East African uh, seaboard and the transatlantic slave trade, as well as colonialism, strained but did not completely sever the cultural and political experiences between Africans in Africa and those who were forced to live in what is now called the Western world. So Pan-Africanism can be traced to early engagements in the 1780s in Britain through organizations such as the Sons of Africa, for instance, or in the US in the 1800s through uh, collectives of African-American and Caribbean writers, teachers and preachers, who are beginning to collectively develop the basis of what would now be known as an African consciousness movement, who are deeply invested in thinking about the African continent in general. So by the time that we see uh, Pan-Africanism as an ideal being invoked in the 1900 uh, conference in, in, in London and the later theoretical contours developed by W.E. Du Bois and others, there are much earlier manifestations or roots of Pan-Africanism that already began in uh, the UK as well as in the US. Now, what is important to note here is that in these early articulations of Pan-Africanism, of African consciousness, if you will, an emphasis on colonialism and political matters were not necessarily a feature of these conversations. Primarily, this con uh, these articulations of African consciousness were primarily concerned with uh, expressing uh, the ideas, expressing the views of Africans and their descendants, formerly enslaved Africans and their descendants, who viewed themselves as temporary settlers in the US and in the UK and saw the African continent as a place of their return, a kinship, it was the illustration of a kinship to the motherland. And what is quite fascinating is that as early as, uh, as in the 1800s and in the early 1700s, you already begin to see a range of African unions in New York, in Newport, African churches in Philadelphia and New York, in the West Indies and in South America. But from the 1900s, you begin to see Pan-Africanism expand towards a direct uh, political demand against colonialism in Africa. And part of this direct political demand can be seen in a range of conversations from 1900 when we see Henry Sylvester Williams, a Trinidadian um, uh, barrister who at the Westminster, Westminster Hall calls for a protest to the theft of lands in the colonies, racial discrimination, as well as the importance of dealing with other issues of interest to blacks. And there was a letter written to the queen at that particular moment. In 1919, W.E. Du Bois convinced the first Pan-African Congress in Paris, France, demanding for the independence of African nations. In 1945, we see the fifth Congress, uh, the Pan-African Congress in Manchester, which began to provide the impetus and momentum for the numerous post-war independence movements. In fact, it is in the 1945 conference that we see a much stronger wave of Africans from the African continent, a lot of our liberation leaders attending that particular conference. In 1958, we begin to see the transfer of ideas, the Pan-African ideals that had initially been held outside of the African continent, finding their way to the African continent through the voices of folks like Kwame Nkrumah, uh, some of the first early, some of the 
countries that were gaining their independence at that particular point, Ghana, Egypt, Sudan, Libya, Tunisia, demanding for the liberation, the full liberation of other parts of the African continent. Now, what is interesting about Pan-Africanism and which is why I think it's an important framework to return to is that this is not just about the, it's, this is not just about land and statehood. So it is not just about the place an idea about the African continent as the motherland, but this was about African people and their restoration to their proper place in the world. Dr. Okesh went on to talk about black power, black lives movements, and things to do with structural racism, blackness, and cultural pride. To recuperate the history of the black power movement from the sort of um, violence within which it has been mired. Because for those who have studied the black power movement, many will know of its association in relation to its much tamer uh, sister or brother, if you will, which is the civil rights movement from which it emerged. And the Black Power movement therefore has been largely historicized and its legacy remains contested because it is a movement that emerged as a direct challenge to the nonviolent approach being taken to that particular response to uh, the Jim Crow laws and racism in the US at that particular moment was a challenge to the fact that nonviolence was not necessarily an, ev an effective strategy to address the structural racism that Blacks were facing. So the emergence of the Black Panthers, for instance, is a, is a, is a, is a legacy of, of the Black Power movement. And it's a movement that recognized and foregrounded the importance of taking arms as part of the struggle for freedom. And so that's why you see Black Power movement as being sequestered into the idea of violence, rather the breadth rather than uh, articulating the breadth of what the Black Power movement represented. Now, Pan-Africanism and Black Power, for me, illustrates modes of political mobilization that center personhood and agency. And these are very important things when we think about the events that have brought us here to center anti-Blackness in the ways in which we are doing now, where personhood is something that has totally escaped the way in which Black people experience the world today self-determination and agency. And these are political and ideological frames that have that at their center. When we talk about cultural and racial pride, that is what is at the center of it. Where is the agency of black people? Do we see black people as people or do we see them as merely machines, a cog in the wheel of the empire, a cog in the wheel of the capitalist machinery as labor to be mobilized, as criminals to be sequestered and abused with any repercussions? You have been listening to the ALC's Pan-African Radio Magazine program with me, Munira Shaeb. My producer was Njoki Ngonye. For this and other programs, please visit our website at alcpanafricanradio.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Radio ALC and on Facebook at African Leadership Centre.